If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis this morning. We're going to continue to look at our story. Um, Glad you're with us. If this is your first time here, we have been walking through the story of the Bible. We've just been looking at the narrative portions of Scripture and showing how all of these stories actually fit together to tell one amazing, beautiful, life-changing story. And one of the things we've been using to work through this is our timeline. And if you're new here, you're going to think we're a bunch of weirdos, but here we go. These are our motions to help us remember. In the beginning, there was God, right? And then God spoke everything into creation. But after he created things, Adam and Eve, there was a fall where they sinned. They became separated from God, and so did everybody else that came born from them, which is all humans. But then God made a, a promise, And he said, I'm going to send a deliverer to set you free, to right the wrongs. But this sinful population grew, and then the next thing we saw was a flood. God, in God's judgment, he wiped out the whole earth. They repopulate. There's still a bunch of sinners, and they try to build a tower. And this tower is to glorify themselves instead of God. And so he scatters the people, and then he chooses a family called the the patriarchs. And two weeks ago, we talked about Abraham. Last week, we talked about Isaac. And this week, we're going to talk about Jacob, the forefathers of of our faith. Anybody in here have dysfunction in their family? You live on this road, dysfunction junction. It's okay, you can admit it. We won't do a raise of hands here. Right? That, could get, that could get dangerous. Uh, this is a safe place, okay? You're welcome here. If we didn't allow dysfunction in here, I would be preaching to no one. In fact, I wouldn't be able to preach. Um, and like some of you, you might have on the car ride over here, World War III may have broken out in your car. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. And one of the parents in the front seat looked like this. Okay, and then you get here and they're walking in. You see Mary Jean in the bulletins. You're like, smile, smile. We're in church, you know, and come in. Hey, it's good to see how you've been. Great. Right. And you kind of wear that facade. And and I've seen you and you know who you are. The Facebook poster who puts the picture of their house when everything is clean or that one healthy meal you ate this week. And you take that picture and put it online when the rest of the week it looks like this. Okay, and you know exactly what I'm talking about because I've been there. I've lived in a dysfunctional family. In the summer, when we were young, my brothers and, and my brother, sister, and I, uh, when we were old enough to be at home by ourselves, uh, my mom and dad were at work. My mom worked here at the church, and we used to call her all the time, telling on each other. Justin did this, and Jeremy and Janelle did that, and we had called her probably like 12 times that day, and she said the three most dreaded words in the English language: "I'm coming home." the longest seven minutes of my life, okay? And we, our family is full of dysfunction, things that go much deeper and more personal than that that I don't want to get into this morning and throw them under the bus. But each of us, and for some of us, family relationship is very personal, and it's very deep, and there's a lot of hurt there, and there's a lot of pain there, and there's a lot of bitterness that's still being worked through in that, or you're going through something right now. But what I want us to do is take heart this morning, because you know what? These patriarchs, these fathers of the faith that we're going to talk about, they had jacked up home lives too. They did. It is is dysfunction city. And, And what we're going to talk about today is Jacob, who is probably the shadiest patriarch of them all. His name literally means deceiver. That's not a good sign, right? And so Jacob comes into this world, and what we're going to see is that God preserves the line of the deliverer, Jesus' great-great-grandparents are a bunch of liars and cowards and thick-skulled knuckleheads. And, And what this does for me, I take great comfort in that. Because I know if God can use them, then he can use me too. And if God loves them, then he loves me too. 
And this reminds us of this story, and I cannot say it enough, it is all about God and His glory. And our hope is in His promises that He's made to us, not our performance before Him. So we look at the life of Jacob, and we see Jacob, first of all, his father, Isaac. Now, Isaac lives to be 180 years old. He is the longest living of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we, only, we have the littlest information about him. There's only three chapters there in Genesis, not talked about very deeply, but one of the things we see is Isaac's promise is the, sa- the same promise God made to Abraham, he reiterates and makes specifically to Isaac. Remember, he is the chosen one from Abraham's line. Verse 3 of Genesis 26, I hereby confirm that I give you all these lands to you and your descendants, just as I solemnly promised to Abraham your father. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky, same promise, and I will give them all of these lands, and here comes the gospel promise, and through your descendants, all the nations on earth will be blessed. So the same land, the land of Canaan, will become Israel, is promised to Isaac. The same nation, that great nation, the Israelites, will belong to the line of Isaac. And then most importantly, he says that deliverer, Jesus, he doesn't use his name here yet, but he says he's coming through your line, it's going to be through your nation Isaac, that all nations on earth will be blessed. But just like his promise is the same as his father's, we also see that Isaac has the same problem as his father. Look at verses 7 through 8, just a couple verses later. They're living in Gerar at this time. It says, when the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebekah, he said, what? Oh, she's my sister. Does that ring a bell? Right? Same thing Abraham did. He was afraid to say, she's my wife. He thought they will kill me to get to her because she is so beautiful. So just like his dad, he throws his wife under the bus, potentially to be slept with by other men so that he doesn't get harmed. And then I love this part. But sometime later, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out his window and saw Isaac caressing Rebekah. He goes, that's not brother and sister activity, right? What's going on here? And listen, the sins of the father are the sins of the son. Philip Yancey, he calls it the cycle of ungrace. And and while we're all sinners, and, and none of us can do anything to please God, we have specific sins that have been handed down to us from our parents, because they were our role models, right? I mean, I see that in my own life. I have specific sins from my parents. I've got my mom's mouth and my dad's stubbornness, okay? It is a lethal combo, okay? We don't love you guys, by the way. Um, so, so Jacob's dad, just newsflash, everybody sit down still, Jacob's dad's a sinner. Isaac's a sinner. And Isaac's dad, Abraham, he's a sinner. Why? Because they all come from that broken branch, disconnected from God, that traces all the way back to the fall. They're born into this world and can only sin. But there are specific sins that if we're not careful, we just continue to pass down the line of our family tree. And these sins have massive consequences. We're going to see that today. Listen, Jacob is no different than you and I. He needs Jesus just as much as we are. Just because his name's printed in your Bible doesn't make him any less or more holy than us. God is still using sinners in spite of them, not because of them. Then we look at his birth, okay? Uh, Genesis 25. It says, when Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah. Praise the Lord. I've got seven and a half years. We can do this. There you go. All right. Uh, It says, Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. Now we see this theme. We see this theme in the patriarchs. Abraham's wife, Sarah, unable to have children. Isaac, his wife, Rebecca, unable on her own to conceive. And we're actually going to see the same thing with Jacob's wife, Rachel. We'll preview that next week. 
this, this barrenness. And, and Isaac, what he does here is says he pleads with the Lord on the behalf of his wife. And Isaac, unlike his father, where he breaks the cycle of ungrace, as he does not take matters into his own hands. Remember, Abraham slept with his servant Hagar to try to see if we could get the line coming through a maidservant. But he waits on the Lord, and Isaac waits for 20 years. He does not have his first child until he's 60. Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years. And he patiently waits over the course of 20 years to have a child to continue that deliverer's line. And I believe God does this to show, hey, the promises that I make are based on my power and not yours. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And, and I say this, and, and what happens here is, is the Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebecca became pregnant with twins. Be careful what you wish for, right? And I say this with sensitivity, because I know that the inability to conceive and to have children is very real among our people. And it's a deep deep felt pain that many of us have experienced or know everybody in here knows someone who's walked that road and and all i can say this morning no trite truisms my heart breaks with you and, and that we we have a god who is not unaware who is not indifferent to our pain and to grieve deeply and to trust deeply we can take it to the lord we can cast our cares upon him because he cares about us. And he is sovereign. Then in verse 22, it says, But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. So she has these twins, but even inside of her, before they're even born, they're already fighting. Okay? And she goes, Lord, and I love this. Again, Rebecca takes this concern to the Lord. And, and we, it shows us our need to bring our own questions, our own frustrations to him. Because that's the relationship God wants with us. We, listen, we, crying out to God is different than crying about God. So if you have something that you need to take to him, take to him and be honest with him. And I think here what we're seeing is Isaac and Rebecca exhibiting faith. They are, as we define faith, leaning their entire weight upon the promise keeper. And here's God's response. The Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. One, from the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. Now, this was a flip-flop in their culture at the time. The oldest always got the birthright, got the blessing, okay? The younger would serve the older. That's just how they rolled at that time. And what God's saying here is there's, there's two nations coming from you, okay? One was Jacob. He would become the father of Israel, as we know. And Esau, who becomes the father of Eden. And he, Edom. And he says, in your womb, they're going to fight. And then once they become nations, they're going to continue to fight. Just like Isaac and Ishmael, and the fathers of the Jewish and, and Muslim faith, there's another conflict between nations here. They don't play well. Now, why did God choose, the, in this case, for the younger brother to serve the older brother? Romans 9 gives us an answer, but it's not the one we would necessarily want. Here are them. We've got a picture of them at their birth. Esau's the redhead on the left. Um, it says, this son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before, and note this, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. Why did God choose the younger to tell the older? He says, none your business, right? I am God, and I choose and I do what I want. 
I do what I please. And that, that can be unsettling for us, but God does things as God, as he sees fit, and he knows better than we do, but he does what he sees fit. And notice what he says here. It's not based on them being good or bad. They're in the womb. It's not like Esau was being naughty and was like teasing Jacob in the womb, strangling him with the umbilical cord. Like he wasn't bullying Jacob. It says, no, this is not according to who's good and who's bad. They're both sinners. He says, I choose because I choose. When I was growing up, I, was, I loved basketball. And I was really mad at God for a point in time that he didn't make me black. Um, I would have loved that. Uh, been a lot more athletic and, and been able to do some things. that Because white boys, let's be honest, white boys can't jump. Okay, there's even a movie about it. And so I, I said, all right, Lord, I guess you made me white for a reason. And that's why I'm sitting here today and not in the NBA. All right? Um, and, and God decided to, to make me white and to, for me to be born in, in Warsaw, Indiana. And I'm not told why. That's above my pay grade. God is sovereign, and he makes these choices, and we just have to simply trust that he knows better than we do, that he's a just God, and he's a good God. And we have to let him be God, because guess what? You and I, we try it, but we make crummy gods. We really do. It's not our job. The position's filled. So then they have these children. It says, when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did have, and she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. So they named him Esau. And the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old, and the twins were born. So we've got hairy ginger baby and the heel grabber, okay? We've got, this is going to be interesting. Esau, his name is hairy or rough, that's what it means. And we're going to later see Edom means red, so he's red and hairy. And, And Jacob, who's in the womb, grabbing onto his brother's heel, his name literally means holder of heel or supplanter, meaning I'm going to take your place. And it also means deceiver, and we're definitely going to see that come out here, actually, in fact, in this story right here. We're going to look at Jacob's brother, his relationship with Esau. And, and we're going to see here, deceivers, they're going to deceive. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, a man's man. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Okay? Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. Isaac liked him some steak. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So Jacob's the mama's boy. And, and, and Esau is the man's man. He's out hunting and doing those things in the woods. Because one day, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Now, time out. At this time, there's this thing called a birthright. And what the birthright meant, and it was always given to the older son, the birthright meant you get a couple of things. Number one, you get twice the inheritance that everybody else, all of the other children get. Okay. Secondly, you're in, once I die, I'm passing on to you the authority and the family, so you're in charge of the rest of the siblings. Personally, I love this as an oldest child to get double the inheritance of my parents. Granted, it probably won't be a lot. And then secondly, um, we get, I, I would get to be in charge of Janelle and Jeremy and their families. I love this idea. Um, but, here's, but here's what happens. Here's where it breaks down. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. He hasn't eaten while he's been hunting. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his nether, other name, Edom, which means red. So red and hairy. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn. Give me that birthright that we just talked about. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? I'm hungry right now. Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all of his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal and then got up and left. And then underline this part, he showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. What Esau did here was he chose immediate pleasure 
over long-term blessing. God had promised him a blessing coming down the road, but he says, I want this right now. And Hebrews has something to say about that. It says 12, 12, 16, make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau. Those are strong words. His birthright as the firstborn son, who traded his birthright as the firstborn for a single meal. So Esau here, he chooses the things over the wor- of the world over the thing that God had promised him to bless him. And how often do we do that? We chase immediate gratification, immediate pleasure, instead of looking at the kingdom and looking through God's eyes and seeing the long game. But let's not let Jacob off the, here, scot-free here, right? He is the deceiver, and we see this happening here. He, he uses his brother in a weak moment. And God has promised him that he's going to be given the line of the deliverer and that it's coming his way. But what Jacob does here is he takes things into his own hands. Once again, we see man trying to do things in his way and in his time. The means don't justify the ends. Even if God's made a promise to us, we've got to let it be his way and in his timing. And then, if it wasn't bad enough that Jacob stole Esau's birthright, okay, the red guy's already getting a little bit redder, Jacob steals Esau's blessing, okay? Now, one thing, word to Esau here, right? Fool me twice, shame on me, right? Like, Esau needs to wake up and figure out who Jacob is and pay attention, but he doesn't. Now, even though Jacob had stolen the birthright, Isaac still wants to be blessed, still wants to bless his eldest son, this is a different thing that could happen here. So in verse 3 of 27, he says, Take your bow and as a quiver full of arrows, go into the open country to hunt some wild game for me. So Isaac, he's 137 at this point. And he goes, I'm old and I want some steak and I want it now. So go get me some food and I will bless you. So when Esau's out doing that, Rebekah overhears this. And she who loves Jacob more hatches a plot with Jacob and says, Here, I'm going to tape some hair on your arms. I want you to go inside and pretend to be your brother. So he walks in there. Isaac says, Who are you? He says, I'm Esau. I don't know if he had to like lower, I am Esau. Like try to, and I'm thinking, I don't know how that works. If my dad, if, if, we, if I came in, even if I had my brother's hairy beard, like fake beard taped to my face, I feel like my dad would be able to understand the difference between me and my brother. I don't understand this family gets duped easily, okay? But, but they, they, it happens, and whatever, Isaac's 137. I hope I'm still alive and eating steak at 137. So we'll just we'll show him some grace. But when Esau comes back and he realizes he's been duped, he does not take it well. Look at verse 41. From that time on, Esau hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. And Esau began to scheme. I will be mourn- soon be mourning my father's death. Dad's about to die. I don't want him to see what's about to go down. Once he's gone, then I will kill my brother Jacob. He's coming after the heel grabber. And so what happens? Jacob runs. With his mom's help, always in his corner, he runs away from Esau, his family, and the promised land that God had given them. Now, you talk about a dysfunctional family, right? This is a mess. And God is here showing that he uses the weak things to show that he's strong. He uses the sinful things to show that he's perfect. But sin has consequences. And Jacob here has to run. He is never going to see his parents again. And he has years of hiding and strife with his brother Esau. And what we see here, even though after many years they do, by the grace of God, reconcile, sin has consequences. And don't just assume that because somebody is your family member... That in the end, it's going to all work out. We need to strive toward forgiveness and strive toward unity and, and strive toward love with the power of God that works in us. And many of us have tasted and seen or are currently experiencing the massive 
consequences of sin in our own families. And it can run deep. So Jacob, he's on the run. He goes on a journey. He eventually, he goes 550 miles north, which is about a two-month walk at that time, to go to Haran. Interesting thing about Haran, that's the exact same place where God originally made his promise to Abraham in chapter 12. So he runs to Haran, but he takes this pit stop in Bethel. You see the red box pointing toward Bethel there, still in the promised land. And when he gets there, he call, he, he's the one that names this place Bethel, which means house of God, and, and we'll see why. Jacob, he goes to sleep, but he doesn't have any pillow. He's, he packed light. He has a stone pillow that he lays on, and he has this dream. And it's this dream where there's this ladder that reaches up to heaven, and there's these angels walking up and down this ladder. And he goes, what in the world does this mean? And I love, one of the things I love about living in 2017 is we have the New Testament and we have some, some realities that show what the shadows meant in the Old Testament. And Jesus himself said in John 1, 51, I tell you the truth, you will all see heaven open up and the angels of God going up and down on the ladder. No, what? On the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. See, this is the original stairway to heaven. Sorry, Zeppelin. The, Jesus is Listen, if you want to access God, there's only one way, and that's me. The only, the only thing that can reconcile sinful man and a holy God is Jesus, who died for us. And we come in his name and in his life, and we can ascend the ladder to our Father. And then when he gets to the top of this ladder, this is an amazing moment. At the top of the stairway, this is in Jacob's dream, the Lord the Lord, Yahweh, when it's all caps like that. He said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham, and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you're lying on belongs to you. I'm giving it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the, the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, and the families of the earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. Does this sound familiar? It's the exact same promise that God made to Abraham. And then he made to Isaac, and now he's making to Jacob. He says, it's your line, the land, and the nation, and the deliverer is going to come through. This is an incredible moment for, for Jacob. But then Jacob, being Jacob, being the deceiver, he gets into a bunch more shady stuff. He goes and finds Laban, has his eyes on Rachel, and then he gets a little bit of his own medicine when Laban says, all right, work for me for seven years, and then I'll let you marry Leah. So he does that, works for seven years, marriage night, goes into the tent to consummate, and it's actually Leah instead of Rachel. Now again, I don't know how he gets confused in that moment, okay, this family's got some major identification issues, and he comes back and he goes, you tri tricked me, and, he, and Laban says, sorry, you worked for me, promise me you'll work for seven more years, and I'll give you Rachel. Okay, now Jacob's ticked off, and he goes into full-on deception mode, and he's painting and stealing goats, and all this stuff goes down. Where eventually, like always, Jacob wears thin on Laban, and he's become rich and powerful at the time. Because remember, the birthright and blessing says that he'll get rich and powerful. But Laban's so ticked at him after all the stuff that he runs by him that he, he goes to pursue him, and Jacob once again is on the run. Now, God tells Jacob, He goes, I want you to head back to the promised land. But this would be terrifying for Jacob. Why? Because big brother Esau, the big hairy red guy, he's waiting for him. And so Jacob goes, what in the world am I going to do? How am I going to reconcile with him? So he sends some messengers ahead, and he gives them a bunch of farm animals, because that was their big source of wealth back then. He goes, here's all this livestock. But at this point, Esau says, uh-uh. And he, he brings an army of 400 men to take Jacob out, just like he had said he would. So Jacob turns to the Lord, because I don't know what to do. I, I'm in a corner here. I'm backed into the corner. 
And in this moment, in this moment of weakness, God once again intervenes. And there's this crazy scene where Jacob wrestles with God. Remember at Bethel, God met Jacob in his hour of need, and he does it here again. And I believe this is the most pivotal moment in Jacob's life. Look at what happens. And I I love what Warren Wearsby says. He says, God meets us at whatever level he finds us in order to lift us up to where he wants us to be. Do you see that? God, he says, God meets you where you're at. And I love, as you look through scripture, he knows people, and he, he meets people with specific needs in specific ways. Abraham, who was a pilgrim for much of his life, when God shows up in Genesis 18, he comes as what? He comes as a traveler who identifies with his pilgrim. And then we got Joshua, the general. He shows up in Joshua 5 as what? A soldier who can relate to a fellow military man. And Jacob here, even in the womb, had a heel lock on his brother who has spent his entire life fighting and wrestling with people. So how does God show up to him? He comes as Hulk Hogan, right? He comes as a wrestler. He says, I'm going to meet you where you're at. God meets us exactly where we are. And for those who are proud and need broken, God will do it. For those who are humble and need lifted up, God will do that. And it's not just a lesson about God as Christ in us. That means how we need to interact with other people. We need to meet people where they're at. Jesus met humans where they're at. That's why he came to earth as a human. And we need to be willing to go to people in our life and not say, you come here. But we go to them where they are in the mess that they're in. Because guess what? Well, we're messed up too. And so God goes to Jacob as a wrestler. And they have this crazy wrestling match. It starts in the night. And it goes all the way until dawn. Some people say that maybe it started at night because if, God, if Jacob knew he was wrestling God, he never would have tangled with him, right? And I don't know how this started. Like, were they bumping into each other? Like, hey, you want to go? Like, I don't, it doesn't tell us how the wrestling match began. It just says they started wrestling. And to me, this is probably a, a, an accurate representation of what the match looked like, okay? Not fair at all, right? If you've got God wrestling with one of his own little peon creation, it's not a match. But God comes in the form of a human, and it says that at the beginning of the match, Jacob is winning. Jacob's got God on the ropes, so to speak. And then God pulls the classic WWF hip tap move, okay? Touches his hip, and he weakens him. He weakens Jacob. And I love, I mean, remember at Bethel, God promised to bless Jacob? Well, he's a wealthy man now. So in the world's eyes, he's been blessed. But God is so much more concerned beyond health and wealth. This is not a prosperity gospel that we preach. He's concerned with our character, about who we are. See, who Jacob was, was a deceiver. And he spent his entire life fighting God, resisting God's will. And God knows that the only way for victory in Jacob's life is through surrender. A.W. Tozer, he said, The Lord cannot fully bless a man until he has first conquered him. God conquered Jacob by weakening him. And you know he does the same thing with us? God is going to weaken us until we're at the point where we're ready to fully surrender. And it's only at that point that God can use us, that God can come to us. And maybe you're in that, in, in that situation right now. Maybe God is weakening you. But then Jacob says in verse 26, the man, the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. So Jacob's losing, but he's still holding on. I imagine he might be holding him by the heel. J- God, Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob says, I'm not letting go until you give me your blessing. There was nothing in Jacob's life that he wanted more than God's blessing. And don't we want that too? We want God's blessing in our lives. But before we can receive God's blessing, 
we have to admit what we really are apart from him. And look at a very interesting question he asked Jacob. What is your name, the man asked. He replied, Jacob. Now, why did God ask him this question? This is speculation. But to me, it's interesting because the, the last time we have recorded in this, in this story, Jacob being asked what his name was, it was his father asking him, what's your name? And what did he answer? He said, Esau. He lied. See, Jacob had spent much of his life trying to pretend to be someone else, to be something else, to lie and deceive, to get ahead, to get God's blessing. And I think there are moments of redemption that God brings into our lives to look at past failure. I think that's why he's asking him his name. You remember the story of Peter after the resurrection? And God comes to Peter and three times he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Why does he do that? Why does he ask Peter that question three times? I think it's because Peter had denied him three times. And he's given him a chance to reaffirm his faith in Jesus. I think he's doing the same thing here with Jacob. God did not ask because he didn't know, right? You were again? God knows his name. But he wants Jacob to consider his own life. He goes, in other words, are you going to keep living up to your name? Are you going to keep lying to others and lying to yourself? Are you willing to admit who you are and let me change you? And the Bible names are huge. Remember, Abraham got his new name, meant the father of many nations. And he's going to give Jacob a new name here. And it's the, start of a new, it's the start of a new beginning for him. It says, your name will no longer be Jacob. From now on, you will be called Israel, because you have fought with God and with men and have won. So he gives him this new name. Now, what does this name mean? Well, there's a lot of debate over it. No one's for sure on it. The word Israel comes from the, the root word in Hebrew. It means to struggle. So some ways you can interpret that as one who wrestles with God, God fights, let God rule. I think all of those would apply to where God is taking Jacob in this moment. I like what G. Campbell Morgan said. He said he's a God-mastered man. After trying to do things in his own strength, to fight for himself, to do things his own way, he has finally, when God put, brought him to a place of weakness, has surrendered and let God be the one that fights for him, to God be his Lord and his master. In, in, in scripture, the promised land, it represents rest in Jesus, a rest in who God is. And Jacob could not enter the, the promised land. He could not come back home as Jacob, coming in his own strength, his own cunning, his own will. He had to let God be God, become the one who fights for him. And listen, we're never going to find rest. We're never going to find true peace and joy and rest in Jesus until we're ready to truly surrender. God says, you can't come to me in your name, in your way. So I'm going to give you my son's name and my son's life, and you can come on his grounds. And there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. And so Jacob names this place Peniel, which means the face of God, it says. For he says, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. He becomes fully aware of what just happened. I just went toe-to-toe with Yahweh. I saw him in the face, and he spared my life. If you look at the face of God, you're going to die. He knows that but by the grace of God, he should be dead. And you know what? That's the same thing that's true for each of us. The fact that we're living and breathing and know Jesus and can come to God, and all is but by the grace of God. And so he gives Jacob a new name, Israel. He gives him a new walk. It says, the sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Now, I don't know if you knew that, but I too have been touched by God. Uh, 
And then it's interesting what it says. It says, even today, the people of Israel don't eat the tendon near the hip socket because of what happened that night when the man strained the tendon of Jacob's hip. And there are some Jews who practice kosher eating that still will not eat the meat that is close to the hip socket. But remember what God's doing here. He's establishing a nation, a nation that he's going to do some crazy stuff with. And we're going to look at the story of this nation as it starts to unfold next week through Jacob. And, and one of the things that he wants to use this nation for is an example to other nations. And he doesn't want to show how great this nation is. He wants to show how great he is. And I like what uh, Alan Ross says. He says, Israel's ultimate victory would not come by the usual ways by which nations gain power, okay, through their own strength, through their military, okay, through their, their numbers, says no, but through the power of the divine blessing. And we're going to look at those stories, right? I mean, it's God that's parting seas and, and toppling walls from trumpet blasts. And this, this way that God's going to show, you're going to become great because of me, not because of you. Self-sufficiency, he says, is incompatible with the word of God, work of God in any age. Faith alone overcomes the world. See, listen, we're not going to get where God's taken us by our own sufficiency, but it's by faith in the one who is all sufficiency for us. God's going to use this dysfunctional family, this dysfunctional nation, which has nothing going for it except for one thing, and that's the only thing they need. Their inconsistent faith in a God who's able to keep his promises and that deliverer that's going to come through their line to make everything right. So some application, and then we'll be done. We said that God uses the weak to show that he's strong. And maybe you came in here this morning on one side of the coin, where you don't think you're good enough, where you think, man, I, God could never use me. He could never use me for ministry. Like, I've made too many mistakes in my life. I'm not talented enough. Okay, God couldn't use me. You know what Pastor Larry's word for that is? Horse feathers, right? Horse feathers. He says, that's not accurate. God doesn't use us on the basis of our merit. He uses us in spite of ourselves to show himself as powerful, and him, he gets the glory. We only come by one means. For those who don't think they're good enough, Jesus is good enough for you. We can come to the Father, not because we earned it, not because we cleaned up enough, not because we went to church enough, but because Jesus is perfect, and we have his life and his name written on our hearts. But then on the other side, maybe you've come from the other end and you've been relying on your own strength. You've been trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You've been trying to gain God's blessing by what you can do, by your sufficiency. And all I say is watch out because you may find yourself in a wrestling match. And God is going to weaken you to the point of surrender until he can use you and walk with you. And for those of us on that side of the fence is where it's usually where I stand. Because for those who think they're good enough, only Jesus can be good enough for you. All your good works, not impressive to the King of Kings. You can come by one way and one way only. Let's pray. Father, we come to you on the ladder of Jesus. We enter into your throne room as we prepare to worship here. May we be reminded of the one that we're singing to. May we be reminded of the one who we're talking about. This is just not some flannel graph Jesus. This is just not some idea of, of, of a God. This is the God who is enthroned with rainbows and wonder and glory and light that, that sits in unapproachable light. And the only way we can come where angels fear to tread is by the blood of your son, the ladder of Jesus. And Father, for those in this room that don't think they're good enough, 
who, who, who are succumbing to Satan's lie and, 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 and filled with shame and guilt that, they would, that you would lift their chin up and that they would see Jesus as all-sufficient. And for those of us in this room that are proud and have tried to do things our way and try to be our own gods, coming in our own strength or doing things on our agenda, that you would gently, as a good surgeon, that you would break us and operate and remove that heart of stone and show us a humility that trusts in nothing but your son. So may we enter your throne room boasting in nothing but the cross, knowing that Jesus is absolutely everything that we need, that we have him, and he is better. May we not look at the temporary like Esau, but have our eyes on Jesus, looking forward and working toward eternity. May your kingdom come, may your will be done, in your son's name, amen.